Welcome back, welcome back, welcome to the first Live with Littlewood of 2022. A very, very happy new year to all of you. I'm back in London town. I wanted to escape to some sun for some sunshine over Christmas and was in search of some more sensible COVID rules as well. But I'm back and what a month it's been in and around Westminster and across the world. We've got a crisis in Ukraine, which looks extremely serious. And we've had the wrong sort of political parties in number 10 Downing Street. I guess on the upside, the pandemic, Omicron, it's finally coming to an end, isn't it? To discuss all these issues and more, I'll be joined by a great panel of guests on this week's Live with Littlewood. Kaboom, kapow, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, Director General of the IEA. Well, we've got a lot to get through. We're back for 2022. This was supposed to be the quiet, peaceful year after all the turmoil of recent times. Not looking like that as we speak to you in January. Got a great panel of guests to help me navigate through the week's events, not just here in Westminster, but across the globe. Later on in the show, we'll be joined by the IEA's very own Jamie White, our senior fellow here, and by the Henry Jackson Society, Alan Mendoza. He'll be talking us through what we should make of the Ukraine crisis and how that will unfold. But to kick off, to welcome two guests back to the show, the Independence Chief Political Commentator, John Rental, and Pundit Commentator and all-round good guy, Alex Dean. Welcome, welcome, guys. I'm, I'm desperately looking for a free market angle on Partygate, right? Because I can't. <laughs> Nobody uh, charged him for the cake. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I guess if the taxpayer paid for the cake, yeah. then I'm outraged. Capitalist from a free cake. Market <laughs> point of view. But it, but it is actually interesting. I think the unfolding events here, even from a free market classical liberal perspective, you know, we we at the IA typically aren't that bothered about you know Westminster scandals and, and gossip unless they really affect the free market agenda. But John, I'm going to start with you. Kind of a principal point, is this basically, and I'm stretching here for a philosophy, about the rule of law, that the, the, uh, the, the anger with the Prime Minister is uh, one rule for, for him and his yes. chums and a different one for the public. And it's about his character, isn't it? But I mean, I think the free market angle is that it's exposed a deep uh, fault line in the Conservative Party uh, among uh, Tories who think that Boris Johnson isn't a, isn't a proper Conservative. Uh, that he isn't committed to the free market, that he is actually uh, a, a Brexity Hezer, as mm -hmm. he called himself, an interventionist, a, a high-spending, high-tax, uh, centre-ground politician. And so there's, an, there's, a, there's a very much an ideological element uh, to the attempt to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alex, what's your take on it? Are you a Boris fan, a Boris detractor? I, th I, you, think I can't believe you liking a Brexity Hezer, and that's not in your DNA at all. Well, I, I like the first part, but um, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think part of, I think what John has said is right, but I think that um, the broader tribal thing about politics is that when people see someone, uh, someone on the blue team under attack from someone on the red team, then suddenly they rally together. Well, we and saw I, that today. Exactly. And the, the, the noise made at PMQs in favour of the PM today 
even from people who I know were critical of him <laughs> up to this week. I've put in their letters. It, it, the, the turn, well, and, so, and I gather from Jonathan Gullis, some of them have taken them back. The, the turning point for the PM, for me, wasn't actually about the police announcement. That's just more heat. I don't, not being dismissive of that, I'm just saying in terms of the narrative. The turning point for the PM was the defection. Because when a defection happened, we saw suddenly... Everybody a, else rallied together. Correct. And those people were out in spades today. For what? I mean, I know you play the game of expectations, but on the game of expectations, Keir Starmer today mm -hmm. fell flat mm -hmm. and the PM exceeded what people were expecting. John, how much does all of this matter? And one of the things I want you to help me with, you've been a you know, Westminster watcher expert for decades, and oftentimes people say, oh, this is just a bubble story. PMQs being a classic example. I remember William Hague being fantastic at PMQs, sure. but it's track Week track after week. The wider public was the square total of sod all, right? Uh, what's the difference? How's one supposed to judge when something you know breaks out of the Westminster bubble into something that is engaging the general public, who take a firm opinion on that it's the talk of the town in the dog and duck? Has it has this crossed that Rubicon? No, and, and long, ago, so why? long ago, long ago, and for the reason that you said actually, Mark, which is that people think that that they thought that Boris Johnson was on their side, uh, an awful lot of them, half the population thought he was. He, he was a lever who understand, understood their, um, their resentment of the, of the establishment and the elite. Um, and then it turned out that uh, he thought he was an establishment elite person who was exempt from the rules that, apply, that he actually imposed uh, on everybody else. And people felt that very, very strongly. Yeah, I thought it crossed your dog and duck test when Anton Deck talked about it mm -hmm. on TV. That's when you know people are actually engaging with this beyond the Westminster bubble. They are not your archetypal Westminster yes, bubble commentators. Co correct. They are not closely examining <laughs> the PAC uh, review of whatever. Yeah, uh, I, I thought that was I thought that was right. But on the other hand, I thought that there was an interesting thing about. Um, society at large looking at these regulations and we've all been through the rules and suffered under them in different ways but then most people think is a cake the thing that's going to do for a prime minister you know so on the other hand you, you it definitely has broken through the Westminster bubble and is a mainstream story and then I think there are some people engaging with this saying is that it mm -hmm. is that what's going to do for a PM and that's where I think the juggling's happening now. Yeah, John, talk me through that as well, because I haven't bothered to look into it in great forensic detail, but of the kind of, and I hesitate to say this literally, but the crime sheet, because they're not necessarily crimes that's being investigated, but are there some elements of this that are sort of uh, causing blind fury? I don't know, a, a, you know, a garden party in which alcohol was consumed, that's sort of absolutely intolerable for the public, whereas... 10 minutes of singing happy birthday might just be on the right side of the line? No, or is I it the aggregate of it? I think it's, it's the whole thing. I, it's the idea that, you know, I mean, a lot of people uh, weren't working in an office. Uh, Downing Street um, regards itself as exceptional and therefore people carried on, carried on working. And so even the well. fact that you did what you would normally do at work, which is, you know, if, some, if it's somebody's birthday, you give them a cake. Mm -hmm. Even that um, just emphasises how different Downing Street is from, from the experience of of everybody else. And also, of course, I mean, if you want to get into the detail, this was 30 people gathered from all different parts of the building gathered in a, gathered in a room to sing Happy Birthday. Well, of course, part of the problem is, while some people say it was 30, I, I, did, I saw George Eustace, member of the Cabinet, saying it was 10. So, you know, the, the point is you've got different accounts and those accounts have to be tested. And to the point, you, the conversation you were both having, there's a 
discussion now to be had about what was true and what was untrue. And we all, as Brits believing in the rule of law and freedom sure. under the law and, and due process, would say that you've got to await the outcome. I know that people say government's hidden behind saying you've got to wait for Sue Gray's report, now you've got to wait for the Met Police's report. But on the other hand, we do believe that you've got, if there is a process of investigation, you've got to find out what the result yeah. is. And the thing I thought Labour had overshot on that was Angela Rayner yesterday saying in her urgent question, there are these very serious allegations being made, and the fact they're being made means the Prime Minister's got to resign. Yeah. And most, yeah. most, most yeah. people hear that and say, yeah. hang on, you've, no, missed no, a step. you've missed a step. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. I mean, the point is that the, that the Prime Minister himself has admitted uh, that that, uh, that work event, as he calls it, in the Downing Street Garden shouldn't have happened. He, he's admitted that that was a mistake. It, in hindsight, he said... I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, and, and Keir sure. Starmer couldn't even land that insult well. today. But, I mean, the Prime Minister has admitted that that was a mistake. And just that one alone, I don't think you need the Sue Gray report, you don't need the police... That one alone is a bad enough misjudgment. I, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. The Sue Gray thing. This has started to sort of irritate me. I don't have any uh, axe to grind against Sue Gray, but uh, I, I think all of these reports and investigations become, become a justification to not answer a question. The sort of I can't pass any comment until the Sue Gray report. I mean, it's not prejudicing a jury trial or anything like no. that. I understand in certain cases I can't say this because it might prejudice a trial. This has just become a reason to delay. You know, and, and, and you know, I mean, it's become a running joke. You know, if my missus says, "Can you help with the washing up?" I'll have to wait oh, until I've read Sue Gray's report, and I'll get back to you then. You know, so, uh, that's fair. On the other hand, what's government supposed to do? I mean, is it supposed to be for a hundred pound fixed penalty uh, um, misdemeanour notice? We're <coughs> we supposed to say we're having a judge-led inquiry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so you know, short of that. Well, well I was saying that they should. Uh, they, John, would you agree that they, they they should give an account in public on television and in Parliament? of what actually happened, rather than... that's what Sue Gray is going to do. But, but, exactly. why, I mean, but so you don't need to wait, wait for the result for her. Of Boris Johnson could do this on the Andrew Marr show, you know... Well, no, because he hasn't gone, gone round and interviewed all the, all yeah. the civil servants, because he wasn't yeah. at all... But he can get... He, what, my point is, he's not so, giving his account. No, but it's an attempt at impartiality, because if they did that and he appeared in front of Marr, there would be certain people who say... It was very difficult for us to believe, of course, but there were certain people who say, I'm afraid I don't believe the Prime Minister. Well, it's a shocking idea. Yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah, I need right, somebody a bit more... Impartial. I, I, I want to come on to some of the other um, problems uh, affecting the government, John, that you highlighted in a minute. But just to understand the, the uh, I guess we would look at it from the IA side, the, the dysfunction of the state. There was a great article on politicalbetting.com. No prizes for guessing. That's one of my favourite websites, politics <laughs> no. and betting. Um, ten stages of mishandling a crisis. I'd, I'd, um, I'd, I'd like your, your guys' thoughts on whether this is right. One, turn a blind eye. Two, think it doesn't matter. Three, refuse to believe it. Four, accept that something has gone wrong, but insist that it's limited to one or two bad apples. Five, deploy a legalistic argument for why things are not as bad as they appear or will blow over. Six, a limited inquiry and or staff shake-up. Seven, protect the boss. Eight, the non-apology apology. Nine, a more extensive investigation. Ten, resignation. Uh, well, we're at nine at the moment. We're That's at nine. And do you think we'll get to ten? Oh, yeah. Well, not in the, I mean, I don't think Boris Johnson is going to give up. I think he's going to be got out by right. the uh, Conservative MPs. And, and in a way, in, I mean, none of... Uh, I mean, obviously the details do matter. But, the, but what we'll do for him in the end is, is that this is, a, this is a moment at which Conservative MPs have to decide. 
and they yeah. have to decide do they want to be led by Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak mm-hmm. and I think they will decide they want to be led by Rishi Sunak. And I don't and I, and I think that the Labour Party's helped make up their mind by taking a defector that people looked at and thought well up yours okay. then we'll, we'll stay with the guy we've got. But I, I, I thought that um, first of all I agree with you that we're at nine and second of all I thought it was an interesting uh, list of ten to which I would add a zero, which is know about the problem before it becomes public. Right. And, and that's <laughs> where, that's where government has fallen down. Yeah. OK, well, that's enough sort of Westminster tittle-tattle. I want to pick up on John's... This is, um, this is the future of the Prime Minister. Yeah, I guess, I mean, well, you know, yes. But as you, you can, you can change, the, stuff you can change <laughs> the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, the, no, it's not. It is important, clearly. But I was really interested, John, in your point about when these things come to a head, uh, are they really sort of ciphers for other gripes and concerns. If you're a Conservative MP who believes that the government has been too interventionist, you know, jacking up taxes rather than lowering taxes, hasn't made the most of converting us into Singapore upon Thames post-Brexit and the rest of it, and you have these, you know, genuine ideological, philosophical policy grudges, does this does it then just get, this is then used as a kind of excuse rather than actually saying, oh, I want to change the Prime Minister, I think Rishi Sunak would be a bit more low tax. <laughs> it actually requires a kind of inflection point like this for that change to be made. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's an awful lot of punk Thatcherism around. I think the... There's, there's, great there, term. There, is a, there are a lot of Conservative <laughs> MPs it's who, a have, great term. who have a really, really simple idea. Uh, of what conservatism is, that it, it, it's, it's low taxes and small state under all circumstances. Whereas, whereas actually, you know, Rishi Sunak, who is a, who is a proper conservative, uh, recognises that this is, this is a crisis and that what Margaret Thatcher would have done in a crisis and what she did do in 1979 was put taxes up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she believed in sound money and, and, and sound public finances and that's what, that's what he believes in. So there's, there's an awful lot of idiocy in the, in the Conservative Party at the moment, but it's dressed up as ideological... Uh, do, what, what do you, you think, Alex? How, how sort of riven is the... And then do you tend to get in politics that there are moments, you know, around what sound like quite trivial things like a birthday cake sure. that are really just the, the battle of arena for what are ideological divisions in any given political party or government? Well, speaking as a punk Thatcherite myself <laughs> uh, and as someone captured by the idiocy that John describes, um, I'm in favour of a small state, uh, low-tax response. And also, to, I'm, to the, I agree, I'm the signing up situation. to the punk so Thatcherite band if, as well. If those are the brickbats I must accept <laughs> in response for my position, then, then I accept them. Because I do think that in order to stimulate an economy in a crisis, a tax cut's a good idea, especially if you've well, basically given up on the idea of debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this, this is a government that's given up on the idea of debt. You're punk Keynesians. You actually think you actually think let's cut taxes, borrow more and just pump money into the Well, economy. we might rely on the Laffer curve You're argument. All mad. Yes, well, Mark's already the said Laffer my point that I, I I think that um, I think that for the time being But we probably cut spending, right? I mean, As Alex well. and I. Yes. Yeah, we, well, we cut spending if you're to, well, to get down the... where are you going to cut spending? Which, well, I... Uh, blimey, where? I, I, I where wouldn't can barely I think of an everywhere. Where wouldn't I cut spending? But that needs to be done in a comprehensive way. I'm not saying that... that but uh, I think Alex and I would both support the government spending less money. I mean, Correct. As well as pumping loads of money into the economy at the same time. I mean, just brilliant economics. Well, or, I mean, you could... Or Reaganomics, depending on your preference. You could, you could lower but the tax rate and the amount of spending. That's not an unacceptable strategy, right? And borrow more. 
No, no, no. I mean, you, you, I think that you I could think lower that both lower YX. tax rates will often produce higher tax yields. This is pretty basic. No, um, it's not. But okay, well then, then we disagree on that, and we can fight an election over it. And I, I think I know <laughs> who will win. But either way, my point now is that yes, it may be that certain things become emblematic of broader political arguments. But I don't think a cake is one of them. I think that on that point, if the extent to which Labour chooses to put their um, bets behind the notion that the Prime Minister will fall because of breaches of rules like that, they lose. Mm -hmm. And they may gain some space in the Twitter sphere. They may gain a great deal of helicopters going overhead in Westminster, as if the Prime Minister's either going to drive to Buckingham Palace after PMQs, <laughs> or do an OJ Simpson and take <laughs> off down Whitehall. That, that, would, be good. that would be box office. They can whip up the excitement as much as they like, but I'm pretty sure they're going to lose. In the end, these discussions are fought and lost, in the whether you like it or not, with an 80-seat majority on the Tory back benches. And right now the Tory backbenchers have been unified behind the PM because of political circumstances. Yeah. Do you agree with that, John? But you no. think that... No, you don't. You think no, it's I, a... think, I, I think the truth is that, that Labour would like Boris Johnson to stay where he is uh, because they think they can beat him. Uh, and Conservatives will realise that, and they will realise that the that the one the one candidate they don't want to that Labour don't want to oppose is Rishi Sunak at the next election because they think they're afraid of him. I, I, my 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 view is that what that lion killing is addictive, and if you've taken down one, you think you can take down the next one, and if you show that you can defenestrate a prime minister, the challenge is to do it to the next. Uh, back in the day, this is what David Davis used to say about himself as shadow home secretary. You know, I'm not going to leave. This week, Home Secretary imposed. I'm going to take that week, Home Secretary down, and then the next one comes along and defeat that one too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I, I, there, there is the notion that an opposition would prefer somebody to stay in post because they can buff them up is almost always wrong. They, they want to take that person down and then show discontent, disharmony on the other side. They're all at sea. We can beat oh. them up. We're the real opposition. And that's what Keir Starmer wants to uh, be able to show himself as being. And that's why today's PMQs really did matter because it was a massive opportunity for mm -hmm. Labour uh, today. It's hard to overstate the extent... And the previous week, Keir Starmer was, was pretty good. It was, was really good. Yeah. Let's be fair. Keir Starmer is sometimes really good at PMQs. Today, today he was not working. What about public opinion? Because, you're, you know, this is an inside Westminster and, you know, John, you and your colleagues in the lobby will be rehearsing what all the rules are for how a, a, you know, a, 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 a leader of the Conservative Party can be displaced. But obviously public attitudes filter back pretty fast, right? And... Uh, I've got a theory here, or a hypothesis, that uh, is a bit like uh, I was asking about whether MPs see this as just a kind of cipher through which they uh, hold their wider concerns. Do you think the British public are a bit similar? That they might say, oh, I don't trust the man in charge anymore, I think he's acted appallingly. But really, in the background, uh, their positivity about the government is based on a kind of subconscious view of their own economic circumstances. If they've received pay rises over the past two or three years, or see the economy booming, or whatever, good rates of return on their shares, etc., 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 things going well, then these sort of incidents become much more forgivable. Indeed, they might even say, and if you're not quite like the Prime Minister, really, those, they're just using those opinion poll questions as a cipher for whether or not they're happy with their lot in life. And if they're not, and it's been a pretty grim two or three years, then the anger bursts out. But if they were, perhaps it wouldn't burst out in the same way. Perhaps they'd let it no, slide. That's, that's a theory that, that people use opinion polls as a form of mm -hmm. uh, running by-election mm -hmm. uh, during the midterm of a, of a parliament. They use opinion polls to send a strong message to the government that they don't like what the government's doing. But you've got to make a judgment about that. I mean, 60-plus percent of the British people want, uh, want Boris Johnson out. 
um, and that's not good for him. So and they say to pollsters now. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to make a judgment about whether that whether yeah. that's whether that sixty percent can be can, that's or right. enough of that sixty percent can be brought back. That's right. And I think if I were a Conservative MP, I would judge that, uh, that I don't think Boris Johnson's capable of doing that because he's he just gets into too much trouble all of the time. And uh, I would just switch to the safe option of Rishi Sunak. And I would go be have the opposite opinion, not least because I don't regard any of the other alternatives as a safe option. I don't, you don't know if someone's yeah. a safe option until they're in the cauldron. Until yeah. well, you, you know, but, but at some point you want option. to twist rather no, than stick, right? <laughs> at some point the odds are you should twist, not stick. Maybe. Uh, because you only have so far of a political time horizon, right? And so some MPs were um, in the Thatcher environment, never wanted to twist until the fates determined otherwise, right? Yeah. And it may be the case for people's opinions on Boris Johnson. Yes, if he was going to be a prime minister forever, a prospect that might haunt some people watching, but for some others might seem rather nice. Um, yes, you might at some point in that environment want to twist. But for the foreseeable time horizon, the known quantity may be better for you than any okay. of the unknowns that you look at. Well, I thought, I thought Boris Johnson did a very good job good today, today of trying yeah. to convince uh, his backbenchers that he could turn it around. But, I mean, once I think, as soon as they leave the chamber and think about it, they'll just... I, yeah, I that's interesting. Whether is it just a, a, a short shot of adrenaline that doesn't really last the evening, exactly. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, but the beauty of a short, sharp uh, shot of adrenaline is that you can have another one. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the point well, you know you're always going to have some excitement with, with, with Boris Johnson, but you, what you also know is that you're just going to have trouble and you're going to have scandal and... Uh, you know, he is just going to create bad headlines. And um, what the, the yeah. I, I've never I've never been on the inside of government. I have worked for a political party, the Liberal Democrats, and I'll recount a, 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 an anecdote about that from back in the day. But what's your sense about how, as these unfold, they just become overwhelming for government? Your bandwidth to deal with anything else, you know, it's all. You know, I mean, we also, you know, we would always say politicians are only thinking about the next 24 hours, but they're almost now only thinking of the next 24 minutes, right? <laughs> um, and your ability to think through what should our economic strategy be in the budget or whatever, it's just completely crushed, isn't it, once you're dealing with this unfolding crisis management? I think it, well, it's certainly overwhelming for, for journalists in Westminster, I can, I, I can tell you yeah. that. I mean, when, the, the, the Westminster lobby today was just completely paralysed waiting for... Sue Gray, unable to do anything. But I mean, I think I think I think something similar is also happening in, in government on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the uh, mirror. Um, that you know, it becomes very difficult for for cabinet ministers to concentrate and focus on. Yeah, on, yeah, on, exactly. On, on that, yeah. I think short of something really explosive coming out of either Gray or the Metropolitan Police or both, I think we we may have passed peak challenge for the PM on his own backbenches. I think that it, yeah, sometimes you can only see the peak when it's behind you, right? And there was a great deal of criticism uh, against uh, Boris Johnson and the all oh, Owen Palace yeah, and yeah. staff and the run up. Uh, but then once you had the the defection in the sense that Labour really had some momentum on, then I thought that there could really... Uh, then that was a time when I thought the challenge was on for the PM. And you saw a good chunk of the Tory party rowing back in behind the PM, yeah. including, by the way, some of his most outspoken critics in public who, who weren't quite saying, you know, bojo forever, but they, <laughs> but they were reverse ferreting on some of the positions they'd taken. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about... I was going to recount back to my um, days many moons ago when I was working for the Liberal Democrats and Charles Kennedy's leadership was coming under threat and I can remember his staff coming to me and sort of saying, what would you do, what would you do? Uh, you, any, you know, we're in a real hole here. And my rather uninspired advice was, 
launch something. <laughs> and and yeah. I, but I just wonder whether you have to do that to escape these things. Should he actually sort of try and and I mean often it looks a bit feeble. I think uh, Keir Starmer's tried to relaunch his leadership on several occasions. And sure. he's also, there's got to be some substance to it. But but could the prime minister basically say, all right, we're closing this chapter. Covid's behind us. Uh, we're now going to do something, you know, here, here, I've got a whole box of tricks here. Yeah, it's called uh, the levelling up white paper. Yeah, that and everybody's just going to say, is that the best you can do? Uh, and it's, it's not, really, not going to change the subject. So if I take your, your question for both parties, first of all, I accept the premise that life has been hard for Keir Starmer. Sometimes life's hard for leaders of the opposition. You don't get a fair crack of the whip. I think, of, I think the right precedent for... You're a man interested in history. I think the right precedent for Keir Starmer is Michael Howard, uh, em, someone who could absolutely serve as Prime Minister, well-qualified, eminent QC. Maybe the times are against him, maybe they're not. This is his time, not a relaunch, but the environment in which he basically looks like he's prosecuting the Prime Minister. That's the time that suits Keir Starmer. He still can't get it right yet. He's not, but, but, he's not, but that's the time that suits him. For the Prime Minister and for the government, on the other hand, relaunch is much easier if you've got control of the government purse strings. Now, I agree with John that the white paper on levelling up ain't going to do gonna, it. Yeah. But you and I know what might. Tax cuts. Mm -hmm. Well, postponing tax rises. Well, yeah. let's, let's, take, think, let's start with think, that and go yeah. on. As soon as the Sue Gray report is published, I think, I think you know, you, the, the, your, your friends on the Tory backbenches are going to get all the goodies they want. They're going to get their Sounds great. postponement of the tax rise. What, what, what else don't you like? I'll, uh, I'll give you a few others, and they may or may not go with them. I think national insurance contribution by employers is a tax on jobs. And if you're having a go at national insurance well, already... You can't abolish that tomorrow. So. No, but you can shave it. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I would have a, have a go at. I think they've already got the licence fee free. That'll be uh, cemented. Yeah. Uh, that's something. Go to uh, war with the BBC. Good distraction. Yeah. Not just a good distraction. Uh, the, um, I, I think that there's a good part of the Tory party that's looking at that and saying, no matter what you think about the BBC, the licence fee as a model... Is yep. something we can have a go at, yep. right? Uh, and that's that. I think there's plenty of people right. in the media is, are willing to have a go at as well. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know how it will pan out, but um, I hope we get uh, I hope we get a bit of punk Thatcherism. I, I'd, I'd be quite. <laughs> well, I like that. But I, I want to move on to uh, another topic, and uh, you know, this might be whether we have we got things in perspective or not. Um, uh, Ukraine. I, I am by no means a foreign affairs expert. I simply don't know what to make of it. Talking about the bandwidth, John, you know, our foreign secretary's on the airwaves and is understandably, I guess, being asked questions about has she been to a party or ever been invited to a party, not about the future of NATO or what our relationship should be or how we should defend the Ukraine. What should freedom lovers, John, make of what's unfolding? And are our present sort of institutions, NATO and the rest, up to dealing with this. Well, it was interesting that the Prime Minister did uh, try to use the, uh, the Ukraine issue as, as one reason why, they, why his MPs shouldn't get rid of him, because he said, you know, we're, in, you know, we're, we're the Great Britain's playing a leading role in Which is leading, true. leading the West in standing up to, to Putin. Um, as opposed which, to Germany. Well, yes, which I'm, I'm sure is true, but... Um, I'm, you know, um, given that we're not prepared to to put any troops into this, all we can do is point out to to Putin, which must be completely obvious to him already, which is that he doesn't want to occupy and suppress 
a nation as big as uh, as big as Ukraine. No, but he doesn't determined to assert its. But that's that's the that's falling into his trap because I don't think he wants to occupy a nation as big as Ukraine. I think he wants to take a bit of it, and for and for you to let him get away with it, and then take a bit more, and for you to let him get away with it, and then take a bit more. It's a very yeah, long-term a, strategy because well, it's already it's worked once. Crimea is basically the international yeah, community is willing to let that go. Crimea is part of Ukraine, but the the, the, the international community has been willing to let that drop, and uh, yeah. As you rightly say, the uh, Lukansk and, and, and Donbass is basically uh, next, and then what comes after that in in the east of Ukraine? Uh, uh, whilst I appreciate, I've turned up looking like the uh, uh, work, punk exper- work right. the work experience boy who's misjudged the no, day. A very uh, punk uh, with, right with the pair of you. Alex, I, yeah. I've been, to, I've, I've I've spoken at a few NATO conferences, and I've been to uh, U- Ukraine, and the, U- the Ukrainians are going to fight, right? They're not yeah. going to roll over, and that's when we're going to have to decide where we are and what side we're on. I'm not sure that you're right about us say, about saying we're not willing to commit troops. Uh, we, we may not be committing them to, in a hot war, but we may well commit them as a deterrent to invade. Do you think that's right? We, this is going to heat up a lot, do you think, John? Or are we just going to be I'm, you know, complaining from the sidelines, really? Uh, well, lead complaining from the sidelines. I mean, you know, it's a leadership role. It's complaining from the sidelines. Well, that's not much of a leadership role, is it? I mean, well, ha- hang on. The Germans, uh, first of all, we didn't ask them for permission, so let's give them credit. We flew around Germany to deliver so uh, material, so we didn't have to ask. The and, no. and then when they find themselves in the awkward position on things like permission for arms exports to old East German military equipment uh, that they'd acquired, ironically, from the Soviet Union in the first place to get via Poland and Estonia um, to, to the front, the Germans are dragging their feet on that too. So being a cheerleader from the sidelines is a great deal better than being a detractor from the sidelines. Oh, that's sure. That's my first point. But my second point is that actually the mere presence of American or British and or British troops in that environment could well be a deterrent from military action. And, the, you know, I think Putin, there aren't many things that would give him pause, but the idea of however many, it could be totally nominal, but the idea of rolling over a very small union of British soldiers would be very different from rolling over a large sure. unit of Ukrainians. John, I've got a, uh, uh, you know, I'm running lots of theories by you guys, right? Um, my punk thatch right theories, but, but here's another theory I've got. Well, it's his theory. Uh, no, I'm, I'm adopting that one, I'm stealing that. Um, do we think, in general terms, and you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in the Ukraine, that we're finding that quite a lot of international institutions, which may very well have served us well in, say, the 1980s, 1990s, the European Union, NATO, the World Trade Organization, uh, to name three, the World Health Organization back in the day, are being found incredibly wanting. I wonder whether there's a, a thread or a theme that links these together. Clearly, the World Health Organization and NATO, very different entities. Yeah, but, but we seem to have created an international infrastructure for very different times two generations ago, haven't well, really adapted them, and I just wonder whether they're fit for purpose in the 2020s. I think that's a fundamental problem uh, to do with the nature of international organisations, is that they always operate on the basis of, of national vetoes, uh, and it is very difficult. I mean, with the, the UN, when it, was, when it was set up, was a wonderful idealistic uh, organisation that was never able to, to deliver its, uh, its promise. But, I mean, mm. it, it, I mean, it has done a lot, of, uh, a lot of useful things, but it is a large and corrupt and uh, mostly useless 
uh, body, but it would it would be better to to keep it than to to, than to uh, than to get rid of it. But my my, my claim, Alex, was a bit stronger. You know, the World let's say the World Health Organization. You know, was it smallpox? You know, they're still living off the halo effect of that. COVID, I mean, terrible record. NATO, sure. you might credit with, with winning the Cold War and liberating Eastern well, Europe. In my NATO today, I'm not saying get rid of it, by the way, but just no, sure, no, seems clunkier and worse. The European Union, I think, was liberalising trade, you could argue, in the 1980s. If, mm. I, if I canter through the institutions you're slagging off, um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, I agree with the thrust of your premise. Uh, I, I don't accept that the EU was useful in the 80s or 90s, but um, I, I would say, you know, I, I went to a, 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 a board in Vienna by the IAEA uh, patting itself on the back about you know atomic restrictions the year that they failed to do anything about Saddam you know, uh, you know these, these are t- there are times yeah, when yeah, you, you yeah. find the, uh, and, uh, and Kim Jong-il uh, there are times that you find these institutions are gloriously self-congratulatory when they shouldn't be and the WHO you're right missed Covid but then again so did all its constituent members yeah, so yeah. I, I semi-defend actually the WHO on that and on the point that the two of you were discussing I don't think that the um, UN is at League of Nations status yet, but it is circling the car park. You know, it <laughs> right, should yeah. think carefully about what comes next because if it wants to, if it wants to make itself more relevant, and I say this contrary perhaps to British interests, you might want to circle the sphere of influence beyond the P5 and whoever gets cycled on and include some of the new powers in this world and demonstrate that it's got a function. But then you'd have to do something with that function and not just the Secretary General slagging off capitalism, yeah. which was the last thing he did last year yeah so we we should muddle through right john i mean i, I wasn't I'm suggesting all, scrap nato muddle well now you're a tory again <laughs> join boris johnson's cabinet is he welcome aboard punk blairite yeah uh, you don't think there is i mean because in some areas quite i mean again not my field of expertise but the us australia uk deal on defense i mean i'm not saying it's an alternative to nato and neither of those but I just wonder whether there are a few straws in the wind that actually yeah. new international yeah. structures are going to be established and perhaps these structures will fall into sort of League of Nations disrepair at some point. Well, possibly, although, I mean, you've got to look back at... I mean, NATO did did play a very, very constructive role in uh, in, in rescuing Kosovo yes. uh, from, uh, from mm-hmm. Milosevic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think, I think a lot of these international organisations can still have some kind of role to play but I mean I think it is it is a matter of muddling through and accepting imperfection it's accepting that you know the, the human rights council or whatever it's called of the UN has got it's defunct know, beyond and, def- and, absurd and Saudi Arabia on it. I mean I think I think that's right and I, I but I remember I remember one of Reagan's many biographers pointed out that Casper Weinberger, his defence secretary, would start a fight with you on a dozen different fronts, start a fight with you on umpteen issues. I think, what the hell am I going to do? And he would say, well, look, if we, you really want to make peace with me, the very first thing you could possibly do, just the smallest thing, is you just give way on this thing. And that's all he wanted. Right, yeah. Right? That's, yeah. that's actually yeah. all he was after. Yeah. But then you thought you'd had a win because the other 11 issues went away. <laughs> I wonder if yeah, Putin's have, shouting the odds now because he wants a commitment that Ukraine's never going to be in NATO and NATO's expansionist ambitions will be retrenched. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. going to win that if that's his ambition. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I agree with that. Let me, before I let you go, gentlemen, John, you first. Uh, 
Do you think this whole Ukraine issue, and this has been a, a, a feature as well of, of dealing with COVID, is going to really bring security of supply as a major, uh, you know, I mean, energy in this particular yeah. case. Uh, but, we, you know, I've heard more and more arguments about, you know, steel really is a strategic industry. There's no way we could ever not make steel ourselves. Food, you know, need more homegrown food. Imagine if the foreign supplies were electronics. We can't rely on China as much as we were. Yeah. Now, as a free trade liberal, I'm sceptical, very sceptical about those ideas. But do you think that's the direction of travel now, where the, you know, global free trade is going to get out-trumped by an insistence that there is both diversity and security of supply of the necessities? I think that's a, that's a very interesting question, because I think one of the things about British public opinion is that it's different from public opinion in a lot of other countries. You know, America, for example, every presidential election in America is... is is tainted by protectionism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know it's that's never been an issue in British in British politics. I mean, the idea that Britain is an open, free trading nation is taken as uh, red. Is, yep. is, is is just assumed. But you're absolutely right that one by one these issues are sort of salami slicing that assumption. You know, the, the, you know we, we can't we can't let the Chinese run our nuclear power stations. Not that we have any. Mm -hmm. Not that we're building any new ones anyway. But you know, all all that. Huawei would be the example yeah, as well. I mean, yeah, yeah, all that seems to be a, a, a fundamental shift in 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 the sort of uh, assumptions that dominate public opinion in this country. It's looking pretty bleak for punk Thatcherites, isn't it? Then, Alex, you know, free, free. Do you think global free trade is on the retreat for that? Reason? I think global free trade is under real threat, and it always has been from things like the buy local movement. But that was relatively fringe and minority. Mm. But the thing, even the left can remind us, and the Eurocentrics can remind us that fringe positions like Brexit can become mainstream. And if you don't watch what's happening mm -hmm. over time, something that was fringe can become a, a dominant political narrative. And sometimes times suit those narratives. Yeah. And I think right now that everything from the sustainability agenda to the COVID agenda to the Ukraine agenda suits by local. And you can see how these narratives build up to subsidising your farmers, to um, trying to have a stronger energy policies yeah. domestically and so forth. But in answer to your question to, to John and I about whether that's going to happen in the near to medium term. The Germans abandoned nuclear 10 years ago. They're mothballing power stations that were perfectly good. They started strip mining coal as a result, which was bonkers. But they did so on the basis that in the medium term, they were going to have Nord Stream 2 online. Well, in the current environment, that's a very, very yeah. hard sell. John, Alex, pleasure to have you with us on the Lively Littlewood Sofa. Thanks very much Thank for you your much. insights. And punk Thatcherism will definitely be something that we talk about here now. Love John's it. raised it. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. So punk Thatcherism, that uh, great, great, great uh, rent rentalism uh, there. We're going to stick on the Ukraine issue for a bit. But while you're here, if you're enjoying the show, please hit the like button, uh, hit the thumbs up. And if you're not yet a subscriber to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit that red subscribe button and the notification bell. That will mean that you hear about all of our upcoming uh, content on the IEA London uh, YouTube channel. If in these difficult and stretched times you've got a few pennies spare, please do consider becoming an IEA online patron. Again, details are in the show notes below for as few as £5 a month. You can help us keep the lights on and hopefully get me a mic that works properly at the top of the show. We'd really, really uh, appreciate your support. Now, to continue on Ukraine and also to talk to us a little about science, great, great pleasure to welcome to, I think, his first appearance on the show, Alan Mendoza from the Henry Jackson Society and our very own Dr. Jamie Way. Good to see you. Hello, hello. Good to see you. 
Now, um, Alan, this is your field much more than the IEA, so you, you, you heard our previous guests talking about the mm. Ukraine situation. Try and piece it together to me. What, what, what is happening and what the hell should we be doing about it? Well, very good question, Mark. Um, and indeed, what is happening? I mean, realistically, that's a question that uh, you should have asked a, a missing guest, Mr Vladimir Putin, to have uh, made, maybe made an appearance. But the reality is that we have a situation where clearly there's a vast troop build-up um, on Ukraine's borders. And when I say Ukraine borders, I don't mean just mean in Russia itself, but also Russian-controlled Crimea. Um, you've got now uh, Transnistria in the Moldovan part to the west. You've got Belarus, Russian troops there. Basically, you've got an encirclement of Ukraine. Now, we have no concept yet about what will that encirclement's all about. Is it about um, an invasion of Ukraine, which it quite obviously could be, because if you assemble that level of force and that mm -hmm. disposition... But not necessarily. Uh, yeah, uh, not necessarily. So it could be, but it could be something else. It could mm -hmm. be, and Mr Putin says, it's just exercises. What are you getting worried about? Um, but it could be something else. It could be that he's trying to exert pressure on the West. It could be he's trying to exert pressure on Ukraine. It could be that he's trying to test our resolve in various ways. All these things are uh, potential options, and that, I think, is what we're trying to do right now, trying to piece together what the appropriate response should be, and starting, of course, with sending a strong message back. Jamie, how worried are you about these um, Russian exercise manoeuvres? Well, like you, Mark, I'm not really a foreign affairs chap, but um, I'm not that worried, to be honest. I mean, I, I can't say I have any great concern about Ukraine. Maybe I'm heartless, but... Uh, and, and I also think there's some, I mean, as I understand, Crimea is largely Russian-speaking and they weren't that uh, hostile to the intervention. Um, you know, a lot of, so I, provided it doesn't, uh, doesn't lead to a war, I'm not terribly concerned and I don't think it'll lead to, I mean, a major war of all the else, I mean. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think it will, so I don't, I don't lose sleep over it. Uh, but maybe I'm just naive. Uh, uh, is Jamie being far too relaxed about this? Uh, I, would, I would suggest so. I mean, I think in 2022, if, if you want to allow um, people to go, yeah, I quite fancy a bit of you as a neighbour, mm -hmm. um, that's not a sensible thing to be doing in the European neighbourhood, number one. I mean, not anywhere, but in the European neighbourhood in particular. Number two, uh, given who Putin is and what he aspires to, his, his own... Uh, global aspirations, his regional aspirations, there are clearly problems with it, uh, feeding the beast, as it were, to encourage him to go further. What if he, what if he carves up Ukraine and then says, mm, I'll have a bit of Poland next? No, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I, I thought Mike was asking me if I was personally worried. Um, and You're not so, expecting to be so conscripted what, or anything no, like that? No, okay, well, that's reassuring. So you know, there, there could be some bad outcomes for a lot of people. In fact, I, can almost, I can't mm -hmm. really see any good outcomes coming. But sorry, So I wasn't answering the right question. I mean, I'm of the view that you, uh, I don't study this stuff, but I'm of the strong deterrence kind of view, and I think that you, uh, you should react reasonably aggressively to these kinds of things for the reasons you said. I mean, if you don't, you just get this kind of creeping. Uh, so what's, you know, speaks quietly, but hold a big stick, right. that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, is, that, is that your um, prescription then, Alan? I mean, what, what yeah. should we be doing about this? Our very own Steve Davies has, has done a video about this and has written about it. And his fear, amongst many others, is actually we will, rather than, you know, uh, quietly holding a big stick, we will very noisily wave a twig <laughs> and say, this must not happen, they shall not pass. But when push comes to shove, do nothing. The exact reverse yeah. of Jamie's suggestion. No, exactly. I think, I think we're in agreement on this. The reality is, yes, you want to make quite clear what you're doing without necessarily shouting it from the rooftops. Um, and you do that simply by... Um, 
you know, private discussions where you outline what happens, um, and equally you move your own troops into positions which aren't in any way construed as offensive, but are defensive positions in order to maintain that there is a deterrent factor. The key thing to this is deterrence uh, from day one. You've got to send a very strong message that we are going to deter this, we're not going to allow it to happen, um, and, but you don't want to shout too much because it also provokes what we've seen, unfortunately, in Europe, which is other countries going oh, we don't much like the sound of this shouting, we're going to run in a different direction, mm -hmm. like the Germans, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. but one of the things that I lament about um, politics over the last, or government spending over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, is that countries, my own New Zealand, um, they're just unwilling, governments are unwilling to spend much on the military. And you know, only really the United States does, and of course China and Russia do as well as a percentage of GDP. And you, continental European countries spend a pittance, Britain doesn't spend as much as it once did. And all of this, you might say, well, well, I think that's one of the fundamental functions of government is to protect us from external aggression. And, you know, they'd rather spend it on all sorts of silly projects that aren't their proper function. And, of course, you just encourage aggressive countries. If they can see you running down your military, they become encouraged. So I think we've uh, pursued the, the wrong policy agenda now for a long time in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and what, what, uh, I asked like, my previous guest this, you know, what should, we're not a foreign affairs think tank by any means, in fact it's probably one of the only areas we don't typically cover, but what should somebody, you know, pro-liberal, pro-freedom, pro-Western capitalism um, uh, beliefs make of our present international institutions? You know, do, we think we've, do you think that we've potentially, if you were critical of the way we're handling it, is it just that we've got bad leaders? You know, Joe Biden doesn't know what he's doing. Or is it actually that we don't now have structures that are fit for purpose, that we've built, you know, we built you know, NATO to deal with the USSR, not Russia under Putin's on a completely different level. Certainly I'm not really sure how, what our security is against uh, terrorism or rogue states. We haven't built an international security institutional framework to deal with that. The WTO is running in the ground. I've got this sort of theory that our international institutions might not be fit for purpose. That's not to absolve mm. bad decisions made by political leaders, uh, but I'm, I sort of worry even if good decisions are made by political leaders, they're not necessarily doing it through the right framework. Should we just kind of reboot the world and its global inter international institutional infrastructure? Well, that's a dream, isn't it? I mean, the reality is, you're right, look, all these institutions are dated institutions in the sense that they were created in a very different world. I mean, mm -hmm. the world of 1945 is, a, is you, know, com, you know, incomparable to what we have today, basically. So from that perspective, we're, we're at a situation where um, we are dealing with still the politics of the victors of World War II, which mm -hmm. are determining much of our international institutions. And yes, we've accommodated other powers in, you know, along the way there, but we, we are living with the foibles of that world. We're living in the foibles of, still, the Cold War infrastructure of vetoes and of, you know, you two powers, the most powerful ones, will all follow behind your alliances uh, in that way. There is a leadership issue, definitely is, uh, because I think, you know, some of these strictures were apparent, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago even. It was quite obvious there were some problems along the way, but they've been magnified by the fact that we are in a very different age now. And I think we have to be, you know, cognizant of that. And we're not going to get agreement, are we? You know, Russia and China are not going to agree with us on how to reform these things. So it may well be we'll have to create new institutions and accept they won't be universal in quite the same way. Jamie, what's your thought of that? Well, I, I mean, I just want to add one... And characteristic, I think, of organizations like this, which is that after a while, they start working for themselves rather than their real purpose. So they get filled up with bureaucratic types, and you can imagine the kind of people who go and work in them. And they're then interested in um, maintaining themselves, enlarging themselves, 
They don't particularly care about achieving the results they were intended to achieve. And so they, they kind of get a life of their own. I think there's a natural tendency for organizations, or bureaucratic organizations, to become less and less effective. And that's one argument in favor of just stripping... So they become less effective, but they're also self-sustaining by their nature. Yes, and they're harder and harder to get rid of. Um, I mean, so I think it would, be, it would be very difficult to do, partly because you wouldn't get international agreement, but also because the organizations themselves would really obstruct it. I want to move on to another topic, and this is much more in the IEA's wheelhouse. Uh, we're calling this section Omnicond. Is it time we treated scenarios with more scepticism? Now, I need to be very careful what I say here, because uh, there's a danger that when you start you know, poking at the establishment and saying it's all junk science, then you're a denier of this and a denier of that. But I think that the evidence suggests that we are probably allowing too many scenarios by experts to actually set our policy. Modeler mistakes about COVID in the summer and autumn of 2021 definitely threw seeds of doubt into the Prime Minister's mind. SAGE, their scenarios for Omicron, but the expected range of deaths at 600 to 6,000 a day by mid-January. The actual number is about 200, a third of their bottom uh, area. Uh, Alan, let me start with you, because it's, uh, I think this applies to vast numbers of fields of, of policy. But you get people who are legitimate experts, right? Neil Ferguson knows more about epidemiology than I do and how to model it. I'm not saying he doesn't. But we're then told to follow the science as if there is a perfect answer that these brilliant men and women can, can give us. And actually, turns out oftentimes that they're their guesses aren't much better than throwing darts at a dartboard while you're blindfolded. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, it ties in and say this is in the IA's wheelhouse. The IA will know this from economists. And I always like to say about economists, they're the only profession where you can be more wrong than right and still be considered a world expert mm -hmm. in that kind of area. Because there is no science to, you know, the forecasting process. Yeah, you can go, I'm going to put this and that in. But as we all know, human behaviour is part of the most important uh, changes that, that cannot be forecast. We don't know when we make a forecast in other economics or, for example, in modelling for um, you know, pandemics as to the human nature aspect. We can go based on this and this and on the virulence we can say this will happen, but then you don't take into account the human factors. It's always forgotten and as a result we should always be going, right, well these are the guidelines and as decision makers they should be looking at this and going, these are the clear guidelines, but we have to take this with a, with a you know, sort of pinch of salt. The other thing is we've already seen previous modelling gone wrong in this whole process. So while at the very beginning you can perhaps say it's a new situation, we're all completely at sea here, let's just take the experts' view, Two years in, you've got to go, well, we've seen the experts haven't quite got it right. So let's look at this from the point of view of what is reasonable from the basis of what they're saying versus lived reality. Jamie, what's your view on this? You and I have discussed this a good few times. I mean, my solution is to force these experts to bet on the outcome of their predictions or have their salary attached to that if you're working for the government right this is what i actually predict is going to happen and the closer i am to be yeah the closer i am to be well not necessarily bonus 100 percent commission you know the closer i am to being right the more i'll be paid because and, and but there's an unfairness on them as well isn't it they might be asked well what's the worst case scenario and even if they're not asked that and they sketch out best case medium case worst case there's a tendency for people to report the worst case scenario, you know, if all of these things go wrong, it will be X. And you've got a scary headline based on a 400 page document in which this was only one paragraph. What are we to make of the experts and how should we treat them? Well, the, you, getting them to bet um, is a very good device 
for not necessarily for getting the right answer, but for getting them to be honest. So they're going to bet if they don't really believe that, that what they're saying is the most likely outcome, they're going to lose money in the betting market. So betting is a good way of getting people to be honest about what they really believe. So I think that would be a good idea. In fact, I think it would be good. I wrote an article many years ago suggesting that politicians should be forced to, to bet on the things they say. Um, and then it would really, they'd stop saying them. Because uh, they talk, they, they bullshit, to use, it's actually a technical term, bullshit, in philosophy. There was a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who wrote a book called On Bullshit. And what he meant by people who are bullshitters is that they talk, and they're not really interested in whether or not what they're saying is true. They're interested in something else. And so uh, politicians are generally bullshitters, and it would be good. Now, modelers, scientific modelers... Modelers less be, so, right? I get that from no, politicians. Does it sound right? right? Yeah. I've got to appease the electorate. But there's no reason why, I don't know, Chris but, Whitty is yeah. going to make something up, is I don't think he is a bullshitter. I don't think those people are bullshitters. I think other things are going on. But some, there's still some very peculiar things going on. So, for example, uh, when I'd, I'm still not clear, after reading about all this stuff, whether they're... For what, what they're doing. Are these forecasts? Are, these, are they just possibilities? Of course, everything's possible. You know. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's going on? Are they telling us this is our best estimate of what's actually going to happen if there's no intervention, if there is an intervention and so on? So uh, it's not clear, clear to me what they're doing, and the betting market would make it clear. Uh, now, I think the important thing, though, to, to really people to get their heads around is not all branches of science are equally... Uh, Accurate or predictive, they can't. They just can't do it. Sure. Right? So these, you may be. Where's well, Alan's point? Right. Especially when it's based on human behaviour. You know, if, if, if I drop this bottle to the ground, we can pretty much, you know, predict what's going to happen. Uh, but once you've got millions of human right. beings involved, and you're second guessing whether they're well, likely to stay at home or likely to break the rules, or some you know. elements of human behaviour are quite predictable. Uh, for example, you can model traffic flows quite well. That's mm -hmm. human behaviour, right? How people respond to various okay. things. Some elements of human behaviour aren't as predictable. And there are some things that aren't human behaviour that aren't very predictable, such as the climate. Mm -hmm. um, because these are very open systems. Climate's a very open system. All sorts of things can affect it that aren't themselves climatic. And that's why economics is so difficult to do predictions in, because economics is an open system. So if there's a natural disaster, let's say, that can affect economic outcomes, even though it's not an economic event and so it can't be included in economic models. So there are all sorts of reasons that, that modelling can be stronger or weaker. And macroeconomic forecasting is very weak. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that epidemiological uh, modelling is pretty weak. Uh, I hadn't known that. I've discovered that during the course of things. And I discovered also that one of the reasons is is that they don't pay enough attention to how people respond. So apparently in some of these models, there are no variables for that. Right? They, don't, they don't take any account of it at all. Um, it seemed, but what's interesting is they always get it wrong in the same direction. I mean, economists, interestingly, get it wrong in both directions. Yes. Both more optimistic and more but pessimistic. But public health modellers always, always think things are worse than they yeah, are. Which or, makes yeah. me very suspicious, right? Yeah. What's your reading of that? Is that fair? I mean, you're, you're, I think yeah. you're quite right, Alan. Uh, I mean, the IEA doesn't do economic forecasting as such because it, it does just seem to be pretty random. I mean, especially when you're getting to the last decimal point. I mean, I, I'd hazard a guess that, you know, our GDP will be higher in the region of about 20% in about 10 years' time. That's what, but, but the minute you're getting, oh, 
experts thought that GDP was going to go up 0.35 this quarter, and it's now gone up 0.4. And even those stats are then revised. It's ridiculous. You're arguing about how many angels there are on a head of a pin, and there's no way you can even you know, measure the pin. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually struck with what Jamie said at the end there about um, the, the, they, they don't seem to have any variables for, the, for these aspects. And part of that is, if you remember at the start of the pandemic, and we were told you know, by numerous people, oh, the people won't tolerate restrictions, etc. They'll all, they'll all misbehave within five minutes. And it turned out that everyone was far more, maybe shockingly, compliant than anyone realised. So based on that, they should have realised, actually, people are more likely to, even if down the line they're going to go a bit more sceptical yeah. as they go, not again, not again. But seemingly, there's a large body of people who are willing to be compliant. So why isn't that all baked into the rules mm-hmm. from day one? I think or it could, have made, it could have meant that you know, guidance was issued well, yes, rather exactly, than rather legislation. Than, yes, because yeah. people are going to follow two years into a pandemic. They're going to go, all right, yeah. we know what happens if we yep. may not follow this we'll, we'll follow the guidance because yep. we think it's broadly sensible i hope i'm not getting this wrong but i mean the behavioral the nudge unit yep. is involved in in the policy making and they of course devote themselves to trying to work mm. out how people respond to various uh, incentives from the government or suggestions and nudges and so on but i think that their work was separate from the epidemiological modeling i, I think so they don't integrate the models um, and anyway, even if they had, it probably would have been disastrous because the nudge unit have performed very poorly. And indeed, that whole area of behavioural economics is, is beset by a replication crisis. So it's a very, that's a very dodgy... What's a replication crisis? Do you know about the replication crisis? Or some of the very um, seminal experiments that are the foundation of the thinking can't be replicated. Right. And that they are... Uh, it's people are running through the whole thing now, trying to t- check it all out. What was an example? Do you want it? Oh, I can't off the top of my head think of them. Some of, some of the very famous. Oh, all, it was all the stuff about um, loss aversion, as opposed, which is the principal uh, part of it. The fact that we're more, we, we dislike losses more than we like equal gains. Gains. If you take something away, you're furious. Um, if you give yeah. somebody something, you're only marginally grateful. There's a yeah. word for this. I'm forgetting. Yeah. But anyway, it's really foundational stuff in the areas being questioned now. Um, but what, the thing that I also, uh, I mean, it comes back to your point about how you can be a famous economist even though you're wrong more often than you're right. Uh, when I, I wrote um, Quack Policy, mm-hmm. today, the last, very last part of it, I'm discussing so, what makes something scientific. And the standard view is that uh, the difference between superstition and science is that science is testable. You have hypotheses that you can test with observable data. And that, that's, that's right. But there's another way in which I think people can fail to be scientific, which is that when they, that they have a theory and it is tested and it's shown to be false, and they just shrug their shoulders and go on. I mean, they don't care that their theory has been refuted. I mean, you know, astrology... What's an example of that, then? Well, the, all these epidemiologists. I mean, they keep getting it wrong by miles, and they keep uh, peddling... You know, as far as I can tell, they use the same old models to give us new forecasts. But hang on, your model's been shown to not work, to be wrong. Um, I mean, economic economists are the same, macroeconomic forecasting, relentlessly wrong, and yep. they just stick at it. What's the solution to that, Alan? The, yeah, no, I'm, I don't want to sound too mean-spirited here. Mm. These are goddamn difficult things to predict, and oftentimes important things to predict, right? We want to know whether there's going to be a climate disaster, whether hundreds of thousands of people are going to be afflicted by a pandemic, even whether the economy's going to grow by, you know, 2% or 4%. But what would be the way, without being mean-spirited about it, to punish the people who get it wrong rather more firmly? I'm necessarily sure you wouldn't need to punish them as such. I think it's more a case of, you know, to echo Churchill's words, you know, doctors and lawyers are there to advise. They're not there to make the decisions for you. So it's perfectly possible to 
um, have those uh, models playing out, people making the models, uh, but politicians and others going, right, let's just, I understand what your role is. Your role is to give me this view, and I can, I can set the questions, and you'll give me a view. It's rather like when you ask a lawyer a question. How you ask the question is very important, because it will give you a different answer in that sort of way. So you have to ask the question sensibly. You have to then understand the data you're coming, uh, that comes to you. And then you've got to make your decision based, not simply on that, but on the other factors that are beyond the realm of what those people are paid to do, basically. And that involves bringing in other data to then make your collective choice. Now, it can be difficult, but that's what leadership is about. Leadership is sometimes about saying, I've got this information, but I'm actually putting other information together with it, and that's what's going to make my decision. Really interesting, but aren't there different types of experts here? I'm thinking aloud here, but just what you've said, doctors and lawyers. My experience with lawyers is it's nearly impossible to extract an opinion from them. Right? So how much is this likely to cost me? It could be anything. Uh, you know, am I going to win or lose? Well, who knows? You know, uh, you know, well, you know, very, very reluctant to give an opinion, which might be wise advice, but you, you, you're, I'm looking for certainty as a client and they can't provide it. Doctors, emphatic, same opinion every time. Every affliction I've got, I need to smoke and drink less. Right? Very, very clear. I don't know if they're right, but very, very clear. Um, uh, and, but in, in the case of a doctor, you would sort of say, well, you know, he's going to have a better analysis. He's going to know much more, right, than, than, than I do. And you'd say that about an epidemiologist as well. How can a politician say, well, here are all the experts telling me this disaster of X will happen, whether it's a pandemic or climate change. But you know what? That's only advice. And I, the leader of Party X, have, you know, consulted my tarot cards or spoken to the missus and she doesn't much believe it, so we're not embracing that advice. Could you, uh, this is, this is, there was a book written recently, I can't remember the author or the name, but Steve Baker was banging on about it for a while, um, called about expert error and mm -hmm. how to avoid the problems with yeah. the experts getting things wrong. And one of the suggestions that he made uh, is that you shouldn't have all the experts being from the same school of thought on the topic. Uh, so, you, you know, there are rival epidemiologists, you know, there are some quite famous epidemiologists, the ones who got involved in the Great Barrington Declaration, who have a different outlook. Yep. And what you want to do when you're forming these committees, like SAGE, is make sure that you've got diversity of opinion within the experts. I mean, in all of these science areas, you know, okay, in, in physics, uh, and not the edges of physics, your mainstream physics, there's perfect agreement between all the scientists, but in all these areas, like econo economics mm -hmm. and epidemiology, there's disagreement, mm -hmm. and you should get disagreeers into mm -hmm. your group. That's very important. And just on that point, it actually ties in something at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you remember we were all told, you can't possibly say that uh, there was a laboratory leak that caused this from happening. All the science says that it was from the animal market mm -hmm. in that sort of way. And it turned out they were only talking about certain scientists that felt that and weren't looking at the whole grouping out there of many people who were saying, well, actually, hang on, there are all these things going on. So as usually, it is about you know, diversity of thought within the expert panel because that will lead you to having those alternative sources to, for you to go, I've weighed it up and on balance, I'm with X rather than Y. Do you think you could, really interesting, Alan, do you think you could ever really find, you're talking about the powers, you know, the qualities of leadership, an objective politician who would really make that decision, or do you famously get into the Harry S. Truman position when he sort of thumped the table and said, will somebody please bring me a one-handed economist, right? Uh, and sort of what he, what, and I wonder whether you get into a situation where even subconsciously, the political leadership know the result we want. You know, we, we want to show either that there is a climate crisis or there isn't one. 
uh, to suit our policy agenda. We've decided because you know we're going to go for this gangbusters, and therefore we need lots of evidence. And if we don't do this, and if we don't tax that, then you know the apocalypse will unfold. Or similarly, you know we've decided we're going to you know cut tax on fuel, and you know we want to rebuild the petrol industry. So we want the evidence that uh, there isn't a problem. Isn't that sort of baked in that it's the, we're just not going to get objectivity um, by having a committee of scientists of you know different schools of thought, or hoping that our political leaders are some sort of virtuous, uh, objective people who will weigh in the round as if they're on a jury? They've already decided, haven't they? I think it depends on the issue, doesn't it? I mean, I think there are some issues that politicians have decided. A politician on the left will probably go X and Y on this subject. A politician on the right will say no, A and B, uh, because that's just what's baked in. But when we're talking about the pandemic, something that was genuinely new to us, we hadn't seen something like different sort of problem. I agree you can come to some areas where you'll have that sort of inbuilt resistance, but other places you're genuinely going in a, in a spirit of in, you know, seeking information and then making a decision based on the information. And so it's very much, in my view, an issue-by-issue issue thing. And uh, sometimes you'll be seen in history, there have been examples, of course, about people, maybe in conviction politicians coming in, who are willing to challenge a massive consensus. I mean, the obvious example of Britain is Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. For 30 years, we all decided that Britain would decline, essentially, uh, would follow these economic policies, whether they worked or not, that's how we'd do it. It was going to be that way. And yes, she had an idea she was going to change it. How she was going to change it, of course, was thought up along the way. But, you know, you do get that, but you've got to be open to ideas about things. How do we keep people open-minded, objective, and also on my side? Well, I think that the foundation of the kind of political philosophy that I adhere to, the Hayekian kind of one, is based on um, recognition of our ignorance. So you go, well, we don't really understand uh, society well enough to fine-tune it. But we do know some basic stuff, some basic rules of thumb. And you would have to have something quite extraordinary and obvious very great threat, like the German army massing across the channel, before you start doing things like locking people in their homes. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a profound bias in favour of liberty based on the history of mankind. And then you say, well, it's going to take an awful lot to to knock us off that course. And I don't think uh, COVID passed was clear enough. And it was interesting. People said, well, we don't know what we're dealing with here. Indeed, we didn't know what we were dealing with. That's true. So therefore, we should lock everyone in their houses. I say we didn't know what we're doing with, dealing with here. So therefore, we shouldn't lock everybody yeah, in their yeah, houses. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, that's, I, that's about as good as it gets, right? And that's why you'll say, well, the left's always going to lock you in your house. And I mean, you'll notice that people on the left were much keener on the lockdown than, than people on well, the left. Well, they have much greater faith in state yeah. diktat. Yeah. Well, exactly. And they believe in experts and the ability of experts to fine-tune society for the good of mankind. And people, conservatives and libertarians, I think, are both sceptical about that. Or at least a certain strand of libertarianism is. Conservatives are certainly sceptical about that. And I, you know, I think this is... We're really seeing fundamental issues play out here, but... I don't give too much credence to experts to sort out our lives for us. Interesting. Anna, I'll finish with you. Does that mean that we should be looking for political leaders who we agree with on their instincts rather than on a published manifesto or a particular pledge to do X, Y or Z? That actually whatever one's political philosophy, whether you're on the kind of uh, free market liberal side or, a, or, or, or the other side mm. of the aisle... Is that what we should actually be looking for? Somebody with instinct rather than pledges? Isn't that really what we're doing, Mark, realistically? I've I've rarely met a voter who's gone, 
Do you know what? I really studied the manifestos in great yeah, depth. Yeah. And on page 64 of the Conservative yeah, one, I agree with this. But page 58 of Labour's, gosh, that really... Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think people do that in the yeah. real world. I think the political pundits go, oh, eye-catching pledge there. I think most people have a sense on the instincts. I like that Boris, I like that Keir Starmer. Whatever it is, there's something there that connects on a visceral level and makes me want to go and vote. Yeah, occasionally it's about the issues. I really hate one policy or another policy. I'm going to vote on that. But I think, actually, people are quite sensible about these things. They go and they look at, you know, the old... In a sense, the old pub test. Who would I rather go down yeah, yeah. and have a drink with? Not all policies, but who do I trust on that basis? Kind of wisdom of crowds, really. Yeah. That's what makes democracy function. We've run over time, so uh, we have to wrap up. Jamie Allen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to my previous guests. We've um, sorted out uh, the future of the British government, the future of our Prime Minister, uh, what we should be doing on the Ukraine, how to completely reset all international institutions and the precise objective way we should deal with expert opinion in future. Not bad for just over an hour. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you had, please hit like. If you're not a subscriber yet, please hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you've got a few pennies or pounds spare, please do consider becoming an IEA online patron. Details are in the show notes to, uh, below. There's a whole load of content coming up on the IEA London YouTube channel over the coming days and weeks. Livewood Littlewood will be back in two weeks' time from Sri Lanka, where I'll be then. I don't know what the COVID restrictions are there, but I do know pretty certainly it's sunnier than it is in London.